Hi. <laughs> so we are studying Jesus's grandmas. Um, his grandmas are the five women who are listed in his genealogy in the beginning of Matthew. And this week we're going to be getting into the down and dirty of Grandma Rahab. But first, I wanted to tell you a little bit about my grandma. Oh, don't mind Emmett. <laughs> uh, so when I think of my 88-year-old mama, I think of someone who has kissed me so often that I really did get my first on-the-mouth kiss from her. Um, she literally can talk the ear off of anyone, so much so that you don't want to go on any museum tours with her because she will double the length of the tour by asking questions. Um, and she's also always been known as a showboat. Hmm. <laughs> she has always loved to sing and play charades with all of us at family gatherings. And so in her 70s, she went out on a limb and decided that it was high time that she joined community theater. Um, so she put aside all fears that she was too old to be out so late at night and too old to be practicing the choreography. I mean, let's be real. She was in the back. Like, let's just throw that out there. Um, <laughs> um, and she threw out fears that she wouldn't be welcomed um, by the much, much younger cast. And she just did it. She was excited to be part of a production. Um, now, of course, she was never content to just give a flat, straightforward performance. I mean, come on. Um, the last show she was in was a musical adaptation of Titanic, in which she was a passenger. Um, and the one line given to Mama that she rehearsed day and night was, when I was in Vienna, the fortune teller told me to beware. Now, when the script gives you the clue that your character was in Vienna, why not pretend that you were Austrian and upgrade your line a little bit to say, when I was in Vienna, the fortune teller told me to be there. <laughs> um, so there are parts of Mama that I so proudly claim um, as being part of my ancestry. They're the parts that I look at her and I'm like, yep, that's where I got that from. Um, but there are, all, there are also parts of my family legacy that I don't really want to have anything to do with. Um, when we were little kids, we would spend our summers out in Pittsburgh um, with my grandparents, and she would always tell us stories. And she would tell us a story which... I don't know what she thought the point of it was, but um, she used to tell us a story when she was a little girl growing up on the family chicken farm. And one night she was playing outside with her little dog and the dog started barking like crazy. And he took off and ran um, probably a good like quarter mile. Like they, they had a lot of land, like a good quarter mile out to the cow pasture. And she chased after him, caught up with him right as they got to the edge of the cow pasture. And she looked up, and there was a giant KKK rally happening in the cow pasture. We were little. I, I, don't, I don't think we got it. Like, I was always just like, wow, isn't that crazy? Mamma saw a KKK rally, and oh, that's weird. Great Grandpa Joe must just, maybe he didn't know they were meeting in the cow pasture. Um, but now that I'm older, <laughs> and I think uh, 
looking into it, we've we've realized that Great Grandpa Joe was part of the KKK, and um, he hosted that rally because he was um, helping to plan a big march down the center of their little town that was a suburb of Pittsburgh against Polish and Catholic immigrants. Um, so I wasn't able to pick my ancestors. Um, okay, fine. Yeah, I'm proud to look back at a line of women who were chatty Cathy's, who were hospitable, who were showboat, <laughs> who were showboats. Um, but I don't want to be associated with KKK members. Um, no, thank you. Um, the only person who has ever been able to choose the lineage behind their birth was Jesus. He was fully God. He got to do that. And he, oddly enough, did not choose the perfect lineage of royals and saints and warriors. Um, he chose some really scandalous people. He chose people who remind us that we're all in the same boat, that your past and your family can be horribly covered in sin, but you're welcome in the kingdom. Um, God exposed Jesus' scandalous past for a reason. Starting in his family history, we begin to see that Jesus is relatable. If your family's messed up, okay, great. Jesus was too. You can talk to him about it. He gets it. And we also see in Jesus that we are not to be dishonored by our family histories. In the lives of the five women listed in, in Jesus' genealogy, we certainly see scandal, but even more so, we see God bringing beautiful grace to really tough situations, and in the end, honor and purpose in being the grandmothers of Jesus. So tonight, we're going to look at the story of Grandma Rahab. She was the great-grandma of King David, and more greats than I would like to count of Jesus himself. And so in Matthew 1, I'll just read the little bit of the genealogy kind of surrounding Rahab. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David, and so on and so on until we get to Jesus. So where we are in history, before we jump into Rahab's story, is that the Israelites fled Egypt in their lives of slavery under the direction of Moses about 40 years ago. They have been wandering around the desert, desert where the Lord made them wait um, because of some disobedience. And they've been waiting and waiting for the day that the Lord will finally turn things around. An entire generation of Israelites who fled Egypt with this hope have died. Um, and most recently, Moses had died. And the Lord placed Joshua in charge and told him that it was time. So right before Rahab's story, the Lord rallies Joshua by saying, Moses, my servant is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land that I am about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. So we have a pretty little map up here. Um, the Israelites run, you know, where those, that little band of 
camels is is about where <laughs> the Israelites were. Um, they needed to cross the Jordan, which in and of itself was going to be a feat. Um, and Jericho was really the linchpin to the conquering of all of Canaan. As you can see, beyond Jericho, you go up into the hill land. So if they could kind of get this one place down, they could really spring from there. So, yeah, Jericho was really important. It was also important because it was going to be Joshua's first major act as commander of the Israelites. Um, There's a lot riding on Joshua's shoulders. He knew God was going to fulfill his promise to give them the promised land, but this was his way of being strong and courageous. He did it by doing his absolute most well-thought-out best and helping God to get to this end. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Okay, so we have about two sentences, but they are ripe with tension and momentum. So you have Joshua back at camp. He's wondering what the spies would find, wondering if he perhaps chose the right spies. Maybe he should have gone. This was super important. Could those guys be trusted? He's newly in charge of these people. He has to get this right. And then you have the tension mounting for the two spies. Yes, of course, God was going to be with them. But they had so much importance resting in the job that Joshua gave them. Um, Think of in your job, if you ever get like a new boss or manager and you're like, oh crap, I need to look really good in front of them. And if they ask you to do something special, especially if they choose you instead of coworkers, you're going to do your best to like really prove yourself. And that was kind of the boat they were in too. So then you have the tension in the mentioning of Rahab in her house. Who is this Canaanite woman? All we know is that she's an outsider, Canaanite, and a prostitute. Well, that sounds like a great combo. Um, Is her home a safe place? Is she reliable? Uh, She's certainly used to compromising things for the sake of money. Will this be the case here? Also, side note, the house of a prostitute was actually a really good place um, to be low profile in. A lot of prostitutes in that day and age were innkeepers as well because it was kind of like an inn with benefits. You just, there were many things at your fingertips. Um, (laughs) So the king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. Well, crap. (laughs) The tensions mounted even more. So now we see that someone immediately ratted them out. Who was it? Was it Rahab? Maybe. Was it a fellow guest? Was it someone hanging out at the wall or the gates? This is not shaping up well. How are the boys going to get out of this one? But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You can catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Wow. All of this tension mounting to this point. 
Now this could have been when all of her doubts were confirmed about this Canaanite harlot. This could have been the time when she covered her butt and defended her home and turned the guys in. This could have turned into a story that was all about the daring James Bond-esque escape of the spies, who in their wild escape proved to all that God was bigger than Canaan, that God is a God who gets us out of tight spaces, and that Joshua really had chosen the right guys for the job. Yeah, conquest. But no, God has other plans. He takes all of the suspense and kind of like derails it onto this little side story of a prostitute named Rahab. So we're on the edge of our seats wondering how God's going to reward the Israelites after years of waiting. We're wondering how Joshua is going to navigate this first step into the promised land. We're wondering how the covert mission of the spies is going to play out. And he takes, God takes all that momentum and puts it onto Rahab. So could it be that the Lord maybe has greater purposes for his kingdom besides the conquering of land? We'll never really know. No, we do know for sure that he does. <laughs> so not only did Rahab hide the spies, but she covered for them with this, a lie that was really pretty elaborate. Um, she could have just said, guys, run. They're coming. Quick, go out that way. Or she could have just said, hey, go hide somewhere. I don't know. I don't want to deal with it. Um, but she took them to a spot that she knew would be best. And she could have just told a simple lie to the guards, like, uh, I don't know what you're talking about. You have the wrong Rahab. Um, <laughs> or, oh, they ran out to get a bite to eat. Why don't you guys just hang out here? They'll, they may be back later. I don't know. Um, but it, the story she tells the king's men that shows that she has a really vested interest in these spies. She charges the king's men to go out in pursuit of them. Hurry, you may catch up with them. And she gives them just enough information to fuel their pursuit and buy the spies time. She's really bold to do all of this and to tell such a good lie. But why? What's the point of her doing this? These aren't her people. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen us on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Okay, this is it. This is why she acted so boldly. She was acting totally out of fear. And a fear that had taken time to mount over 40 years. So the Lord had dried up the water of the Red Sea 40 years ago so that the Israelites could escape Pharaoh. Um, somewhere in that time frame, they um, totally... <laughs> totally demolished Sihon and Og. Um, both of these kings came out into the desert. They didn't want the Israelites coming through their land. They came out in the desert um, with their armies to stand their ground. And God was like, mm, no, don't even worry about it. In the case of Og, God told Moses, don't be afraid of him. For I've handed him over to you with his whole army in his land. And the Israelites decimated them. So for all the people of Jericho know 
This rogue nation with their mighty God just went AWOL somewhere in the desert for 40 years, and they're now popping up a few miles away. Crap. That's 40 years of legend and fear mounting, and now they're right outside their doorstep. So the crazy thing to me is that Rahab says that all of their hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed. So how was everyone else responding? Well, we know the king of Jericho was trying to squash the spies and find them. Um, but what was the rest of the city like? Were people boarding up their houses? Were they getting weapons? Were they stockpiling things? Were they arming their kids? Were people fleeing? Like, this was probably a pretty hectic and crazy fear-based time in this town. And all we see is Rahab's response. So she takes these feelings of melting in fear, and she steps out in faith. And she sees the true nature of the Lord when she does so. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and we see that a hundred times over in Rahab. She describes her fear and her courage melting, and immediately follows it up with, For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. She was not frozen in her fear, but took the little bits of information that she had heard about the God of the Israelites, and she let it in. And I believe that God revealed himself to her in that time of vulnerability so that she could proclaim who he was. He chose her. He knew that her heart was ready to do that, and he gave her this opportunity. He honored her tenacity in the midst of crippling fear by revealing himself to her. And not just doing that, but by using her as part of his huge plan, a plan that not just resulted in the salvation of her family and um, the birth of David, but all the way up to the birth of Jesus. And then we see her take this proclamation of who God is, and act really boldly because of it. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, Go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return, and then go on your way. So this plea is even further proof that she believes that God is who he says she is. She is acting in such a way to protect herself because she knows that Jericho is going down. Um, even in the action to protect her family. I think the Lord is showing us that the kingdom is really kind of unpredictable and not what you expect. Not only would a prostitute be one of Jesus's grandmas, but a prostitute who I would assume maybe was on the outs with her family or that she was at least the family member who you were like, oh, uh, yeah, she's, she's, she's doing fine. She's uh, working in the hospitality industry now. So yeah, she, yeah, she's great. Don't worry about it. Um, but the fact that her, that she was the one um, whose simple act of faith saved her entire family is beautiful. That's, that's the kingdom. That's what Jesus is all about. Now the men had said to her, 
This oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers, and all your family into your house, if any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our, our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we're doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went to the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. So I think it's cool that all we are given about the major mission that Joshua's spies went on, remember he said, go spy out the whole land of Canaan and especially Jericho. All we know is they made it into Rahab's house for the night and her words gave them all they needed. That was it. That was their mission. All they needed to report back to Joshua. All they told him were the words that Rahab gave them. All the people are melting in fear because of us. So Rahab and Joshua's stories point to the same truth about our relationship with God. That sometimes he will give us amazing direction and signs. And sometimes he will just say, be strong and courageous and know that I'm with you. And this is why I think we stop and witness the story of Rahab in the midst of all the mounting suspense in the story of Joshua. When Moses was first called to lead the Israelites, man, he was called to act in faith, but he was given a lot of help <laughs> with that faith. If you think about Moses, he was given pillars of smoke and fire, burning bushes, staffs turning into snakes, water turning into blood, firstborn sons dying. Um, and Joshua, poor guy, right off the bat, wasn't given any of those physical signs. Just the Lord telling him, be strong and courageous and know that I am with you. And Rahab did the same thing. And she didn't even hear directly from God. She was working off of 40 years of hearsay. <laughs> she was called to take the little that she had overheard about the God of Israelites and act in faith. And the Lord was faithful to Rahab, her family, and the Israelites. After this brief story, the Israelites enter Canaan. Um, God again splits the Jordan. Well, it wasn't the Jordan the first time, but he splits a body of water for them to walk through on dry land. And then they do the big march around Jericho for seven days, and then it all comes crumbling down, and then they burn it and kill everyone. And it, it happened. They were in there. Um, and God was faithful to Rahab. Um, later on in Joshua, after all that happens, um, it says, The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother and brothers, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her, 
because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. So why? I think we know why her story was put in that part of Joshua. But why choose her to be part of Jesus' genealogy? The first reason why is Rahab's story shows us who the kingdom of God is for. You aren't welcomed into the kingdom of God because of your wealth or reputation or blamelessness. If Rahab can be welcomed into the kingdom and used by God, then so can I, the great-granddaughter of a KKK member. Um, So if we know who the kingdom of God is for and who it's not for, why? (laughs) What's the point of it? Why is the kingdom of God for people like Rahab and people like me? Well, I think Rahab shows us that we cannot become a new creation in the Lord unless we first fear the Lord and humbly accept him as Savior. I think that God is constantly, (laughs) constantly teaching me this one. But that's a good thing. I think the things in life that God teaches us over and over and over again are because they're the really important things that he's refining and refining and refining. Um, So for me, this year, I have an 11-month-old, almost, not yet. He's still a little 10-month-old baby. Um, But ever since my second son, Jonah, was born, um, I've been struggling so much with time and commitment and feeling like I'm never enough. Um, I feel like I don't have enough time to give to my oldest son, Emmett. I feel like I don't have enough time for my baby. I don't have enough time to do life-giving things for myself. I don't have enough time, well, at least non-interrupted kid-free time (laughs) to spend with Sam, my husband. Um, I don't have enough time to be with my extended family who are all over the country. I don't have enough time to do my job at Scumwell, not enough time to invest in my community well, not enough time to reach out to non-Christian friends well, not enough time to spend with the Lord. And it, like, for a while, just drove me kind of crazy. It brought me to a place of feeling just frazzled and like I never knew when to just be content. But somehow, in the midst of that, um, I'm realizing that it's okay that, yeah, I, I can't be everything for everybody. Um, and that's kind of the point. <laughs> I, I need God. I desperately need him. I need to talk with him all day to show me how to spend my time. Um, I, need to, I need him to lead me to say, okay, yeah, I can put down this work. Emmett's asking me to read him a book. That's more important right now. Or sometimes, not that that's, you know, always the most important thing. Sometimes I need God to tell me, to tell Emmett, no, I have to work. You can go play right now. Um, I need God to tell me when to go to a party where I might meet new people and when it's okay just to hang out at home and poop out and eat chocolate and watch Masterpiece Theater by myself. Um, (laughs) I need him to tell me when to stop folding the never-ending pile of laundry and maybe go find Sam and ask him if he wants to, like, play a game or something dorky like that. Um, Or when to stop talking to an old friend or someone who I just hung out with yesterday at SCUM and maybe look around for someone I don't know and talk to them. Um, I also need him to tell me when to not feel guilty at scum when I end up ignoring the entire room of people because there was one person who really needed me to listen to them. And all of those things, it's not black and white. You need God. You, 
I need God. I can't do it without him. So what now? Okay, if our identity is in Christ and not in our own abilities, what do we do? How do we respond? Well, I think we do our best, like Rahab, to act on what we know, to act in our faith that God is Lord of heaven above and earth below. Hebrews 10.39 says, But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. James 2.17, Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. 1 Timothy 6.12, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called. So how can we take what we know about God and act on it? Well, one thing we can one thing all of you can do that I don't have to do. Just kidding. I have to do it. <laughs> um, okay. If you're unsure of what people think of you, or if they even really want you around, stop. <laughs> what do you know about God? Start there. We know that he made us to be a new creation in him. And we know that he made us to be parts of a body, each in need of each other. So you can act on that. Even if you can't control exactly how someone's going to respond, you can show up to things. You can go out on a limb and share a little bit about your past with someone or pray before you enter a room and say, God, who do you want me to talk to? And what do you want me to say? And when do you want me to shut up and just listen? Um, For me personally, another thing is I get... I get really overwhelmingly sad about the stories that constantly cover my Facebook newsfeed. Um, And I I notice that my gut response is to let them bring me to a point of despair. I don't know why God lets that happen. Okay, just if you don't know what to do with it, just set it aside, gloss over it, go to a video of people making food quickly or go look at that baby or ah, I don't know oh look we're doing an event at scum fun 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 (laughs) um but is that me acting in faith or me being frozen in fear in my scared response um I think I may be forgetting what I know that God is Lord of heaven above and on earth below and so what do I do like I don't know yeah I can start with prayer and hear this. I'm not saying that just stopping at hashtag pray for Paris or hashtag pray for San Bernardino is enough. And that's the only thing Christians can do. I'm not saying that. But for me, maybe that's where I can start. Maybe I can open my eyes and not scroll really quickly. Maybe I can work up to actually opening the article when I feel like it. But the headline is enough for me to cope with right now. Um... And maybe I can just bring my overwhelming sadness in response to God and trust in Romans 8 when it says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Man, that's beautiful. That's that's like guttural. The Spirit does that for us. Um, I'm going to close with a story of a really messy and poignant time in Sam and my lives um, when we both kind of somewhat separately of each other acted in faith of what we knew about God um, and not in faith in our own abilities and situations. Um, So Sam and I started dating at a summer camp in New York where we were both counselors. 
Um, and we both started, we started dating the summer after we had both graduated college. So we had only been dating about a month <laughs> when we talked. Well, we, we talked a lot. <laughs> Some of us talked more than others. Um, <laughs> um, but we really felt like God maybe wanted us to continue on in this relationship by living in the same city. So my parents were just about to move from Long Island, um, where I grew up, down to Nashville for work. And I had just been, like, my plan for the last four or five months was, that's it. I'm just going to go to Nashville, fresh start. I don't feel like going to Boston and New York like everyone else is doing. I'm just, cool, new city, fresh start, family's there, awesome, done. Um, And Sam, (laughs) the whole time going into the summer, was like, I really feel like I have to live in Denver. He had done a student teaching here and loved scum and was like, I, I really think I need to be in Denver. So this is a really transitional time. And I'm probably the only one who ever does this. But in times of transition, I try to control <laughs> things that I really shouldn't be controlling because I'm like, look, we're okay. I can control these things. I got this. So Sam was being really insistent on, I really want to be in Denver. And I'm like, Nyeh. I kind of had plans to do Nashville. And so I may or may not have used my womanly wiles to convince Sam (laughs) that Nashville really was the best choice. And it was fun. My family's going to be there. It's going to be great. So Sam decided that he would move to Nashville. But first he was like, okay, I'm going to go home to Montana, get my stuff, spend a little time with my parents, and I'll drive out to Nashville and meet you there. So he does that. And then on his way driving to Nashville, he stops in Denver for a couple days and stays with um, Ryro, Jesse's buddy, who's talked here before. And friggin' (laughs) God shows up and talks to him like he has never talked to him in his life and was like, you have to live in Denver. You're going to live in Denver. (laughs) So poor Sam, he he knew that he couldn't ignore it. He, he knew. Like, yeah, he was like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Um, so he knew that that's what he needed to do. Now, meanwhile, he also knew that we sucked at long-distance relationships. Because remember when I talked about the person who might like to talk more than the other person? <laughs> Said person often felt like if she did not, he, he or she, Okay, it was me. Um, (laughs) That if she was apart from Sam, that, dang it, she needed to talk to him every day, and that was going to be their point of connection. And meanwhile, Sam's like, hi, what could you possibly have to tell me today that you didn't have to tell me yesterday? (laughs) So he kind of knew, like, I'm not going to force her or hang, like, our relationship over her head but I kind of know this isn't going to work out. Um, And so he also knew that my parents were going to be really upset the whole time. They were like, oh, Sam, just come and live in our house, and you can stay here as long as you want until you get your feet on the ground here in Nashville. And he just knew he was going to, like, crush not only me, but my whole family. So he drove all the way to Nashville. He told me that he loved me. And then he told me that God was calling him to Denver and he was going to leave in a week or two. So after a lot of tears and, I don't know, 
a lot of drama and like, maybe we shouldn't hold hands while you're here because I really love you, but we're probably not going to end up together. Like, <laughs> like after so many emotions, um, I was faced with a really messy decision. And again, Sam never said, you need to come. If I left, I would leave my parents and my little sister who had just started college in Nashville. Um, I would risk getting to Denver and not liking it. I was an East Coast girl. I really, like, I had never, I don't know, I had been to Pittsburgh. One time I went to Chicago. That was about as far west as I had gone. I had no clue where to live or how to get around the city or where my job would be. We had freaking been dating for two months at this point. This guy could turn out to be a freak on a leash once we got to Denver. And he did, but he was still great. No. <laughs> and then I had all of my college friends, most of whom weren't Christians, but um, they were encouraging me to be a strong, independent woman who let her man woo her and who did not run across the country just for a boy. That is stupid and naive. But in the end, I chose to risk it and come here to be with him not just because he has always been my dreamboat, um, but because of the little that I did know, um, that the Lord's plans for me were for me to prosper and not be harmed, and that the Lord told me not to worry because he would always be with me. And because, as my dad encouraged me, if this guy is willing to follow God more than he's willing to follow you, then he's a man worthy of following. <laughs> um, so... I hope that in a story of Rahab and in some of my weird side anecdotes <laughs> um, that you were able to learn a little bit more about who Jesus came for, why he came, and how we should respond to his coming from his dear old grandma Rahab. My prayer for all of us in response to her story is the same prayer that Paul had for the Thessalonians. With this in mind, I constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power, he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we love you. We thank you for giving us enough. Well, way, way, way more than enough. But thank you for giving us enough to act on. Um, thank you for the truth of who you are. Thank you for this season of Advent where we are reminded of that, where we get to remember why you came every single week. So we love you, Lord. May you go before us this week and help us to see um, how you may be calling us to act in faith.